Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and today I have a very exciting episode for you. This week, I was honored to speak with Dr. Natalia Molina. She is a distinguished professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. We spoke about many Latinx and Kennedy connections, and I learned so much from this conversation. This is one of my personal favorite episodes today, for sure. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Molina. And here I am joined by Dr. Natalia Molina. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm excited to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So before we get started, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm a professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California, USC. I've written books on how race is made in America. I've written books on Los Angeles, and I currently have a book coming out entitled A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished Its Community. And so I'm really excited to be with you today and talk about the ways in which Latinos have connected to the Kennedys over time. Yes, I'm so I was kind of telling you about this before, but I'm just so thrilled that you reached out to me and wanted to speak to me about this, because honestly, I'm not super up to speed on these topics. So I'm really excited to learn along with the audience uh, and about so many things that you have on the list to learn about today. So balls in your court and I'm ready when you are. Well, I think it's interesting uh, that you say that, you know, this isn't a topic that you're that familiar with. And I don't think many people are. Mm -hmm. And that's because there are all these different little data points and little stories around Latinos and the Kennedy connection. And so you don't often read at them at, about them at once. You know, there's the social cultural connection. There's the political connection. There's the labor connection activism, Catholicism, immigration. And it was really as I began to think about those connections, as I would listen to your podcast and I think, oh, there's a civil rights connection. Oh, there's that time that, you know, Bobby, Bobby met one of the, the bus boys, you know, that I started thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's actually a story that we can string together here. Absolutely. And that's such a good point, too. What you just made is is there's obviously really pivotal and huge moments there, but they're all kind of scattered throughout their uh, history. You know, it's not it's not so easy to just search this one central topic and get all of these things like it is. I mean, if you're searching, I don't know. Cuban Missile Crisis. It's all right there. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I don't know. I'm just really fascinated by this for sure. Yeah, I mean. Just so that we are on the same page about terminology, I'm going to use the phrase Latino throughout the podcast. And when I'm talking about Latinos, I'm mainly talking about Mexican-Americans during this time period. Uh, we could also talk about Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans. But Mexican-Americans in 1960 represent 70% of the 3.5 million Latinos at this time. The other term I could use as this pan-ethnic term is Hispanic, 
or Latinx. And so Hispanic would be another general pan-ethnic term. Some people don't like it as much because it was a term created by the government under Nixon, and they feel Latino is more community-based, more empowering. Recently, there's been a turn to the term Latinx, and so it replaces the O, which is gendered around men. uh, And so Latinx helps be inclusive in terms of men, women, transgender, non-binary people. I'm going to use Latino in part because since I'm talking about folks from the 1960s, I think it reflects their politics a little bit more. Could the argument be made to use any of these other terms? Sure. That's what's so interesting about these terms. They all invite their own debate in politics and change over time and where we are in the U.S., There's about 3.5 million Latinos in the United States, and almost 70% of them are Mexican, Mexican Mexican-Americans. So that's the population I'm mainly talking about. Uh, Cuban-Americans also have less of a connection to the Kennedys because they have a different relationship with the Kennedys, right? Mm -hmm. When we're talking about Cubans, we're talking about Cuban refugees who came to the United States, many of them arriving in Florida after Fidel Castro took over. And when Fidel Castro takes over in Cuba, many of those that came to the United States lost their property, lost their business. And so they really wanted quick action uh, from the Kennedys around uh, Castro. And we see the Bay of Pigs um, and kind of the fiasco. You know, you mentioned the Bay of Pigs. You know, there's a Latino connection there, which is sure. that the you know, Cuban community was not happy with the way that it was handled, um, including loss of life of some of their, their Cuban nationals. And so uh, that is not a group that really supported the Kennedy. So when I'm talking today, I'll use the term Latino, but it's mainly Mexican-Americans. And I'm mainly talking about the Southwest and the central Midwest, so like the Great Lakes region. One of the main ways that we can look at the Latino connection is to talk about the Viva Kennedy campaigns. And so the Viva Kennedy uh, clubs were this organizing unit, these political clubs that organized on behalf of the Kennedys. And this is really different for the Latino community at this time. For one, the Latino community at this time was really, mainly the organization had centered around education, around uh, social issues. They hadn't really gotten into political issues. And so this is the first time that we see kind of mass mobilization of Mexican-Americans who were really excited by a candidate, who felt that a candidate could offer them hope and change. And Kennedy, in response, uh, promised to improve the lives of Latinos. When he's talking about civil rights, he's thinking about it also within the framework of not just African-Americans, but also Latino Americans. And so he's talking about improving their lives through like, you know, uh, civil rights reform, but also political appointments and giving them more influence in government. So the Viva Kennedy Clubs operated in Latino communities throughout the Southwest, uh, beginning for the 1960 presidential election. And they were really formed by two main groups. The first group was the American GI Forum and the League of United Latin American Citizens. And the American GI Forum is really interesting because you're talking about veterans who had come back from World War II. 
And just like we're accustomed to hearing, you know, the story of African-Americans who uh, fought in World War II and wanted to come home to a more uh, equitable United States, Latino Americans did as well. You know, uh, for African-Americans, we're we're familiar with the double V campaign, victory abroad, victory at home. Mm -hmm. And Latino Americans faced discrimination when they came back. You know, one of the, the main things that the American GI Forum is known for is that there's a pivotal event where a widow of a World War II veteran Want Beatrice Longoria wants to hold a wake for her husband, and the funeral director says, "Sorry, you know, I, I don't think my white customers, my white clients, would be very happy with that. You cannot hold the wake for your husband here." Um, and you know, here she is, a, a, a widow of a veteran, and she can't even give him a proper service, a proper oh burial. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And the other connection there is that it's actually Lyndon Johnson who intervenes there. So we we think about the connection between Latinos and the Kennedy, but we also need to remember that Lyndon Johnson was from Texas mm-hmm. and that he also had been fighting on behalf of Mexican-Americans for quite some time. He had worked with them as a teacher. He had seen their poverty and he had also been working uh, around the issue of civil rights, but also just economic empowerment. And so you see this this coalition then between the Kennedys and Johnson in terms of this is a group, this is a pair that the Latino community can uh, wrap their their votes and hearts and minds around. The other thing to remember about the Viva Kennedy clubs is, you know, in the end, they did not get that much out of the Kennedy administration. Of course, you know, one his civil rights agenda was was short-lived because of this assassination. But what he did do was he did do some key appointments, such as naming the first Latino to an ambassadorship. Uh, that was Raymond Theus, and he was appointed as the first ambassador to Costa Rica. The other thing is that it just... It, it the Viva Kennedy clubs organized Latinos. It really got them going, and so they started to uh, organize for their own political officials. So they got uh, the first Latino appointed to Congress, Henry Gonzalez, in 1961. They started a network of organizations, such as such as the Political Association of Spanish-Speaking Organizations, and that would go help other minority candidates get elected. So overall, they had a lasting impact on Latino activism. And many people argue that it they that activity that they had set the stage for the Chicano civil rights movement that would soon follow in the 1960s and 1970s. That is fascinating. I never knew that all of that went back to the Viva Kennedy clubs. That's amazing. It's it's really interesting because sometimes you look at where people will trace uh, the connection between Latinos you know, and the Democratic Party, and some will go back to Viva Kennedy. Some will go back to a key night, and that key night happened uh, the last night before JFK was assassinated. On that night, he went to go speak to the other group that helped found the GI Forum, the League of United Latin American Citizens. And they were having an event 
in Houston. And because Kennedy and Johnson were already looking ahead to elections, they had told Kennedy, you should go speak to the Mexican-American Civil Rights Organization. So he goes the night before. It's, you know, JFK, Jackie, LBJ, and Lady Bird. And they all go to this event. JFK speaks, but then he introduces Jackie. And, you know, Jackie is really revered for, for you know, her her education, her culture, and we remember her as speaking French, right? There's that trip Mm -hmm. where they go to France and she speaks in French and she wins over the public. And Jackie even says that, you know, oh, I'm the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris. But many don't realize that she also spoke Spanish fluently. I mean, at one point, Lyndon Johnson, once Lyndon Johnson becomes president, he considers making her the ambassador to Mexico. Oh, wow. So they go to this event and I had read about it, uh, but in preparation for this interview, I just, you know, did a little bit more research on it. And there's actually a video on it where she's speaking. She speaks to the crowd and she speaks in Spanish. And from the video, I'm pretty sure she's not even using notes. And so here she is speaking to the crowd in a different language. And it's, you know, Jackie's so poised, but you could tell she's a little bit nervous Mm -hmm. and she even fumbles just a little bit, but it just, you could tell it endears her to the crowd even more that here she is making such an effort to connect to them. I love that. I'll actually insert that clip right here as well. Listened to the tapes with Jackie with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. so many times. I've talked about it a lot too. I just am fascinated by them. And she mentions in the tapes, I wonder if I'll be able to find the audio clip. I'll insert that as well if I can. But she mentions how she obviously was raised speaking French and she does uh, speak Spanish and stuff too. But she says, I actually don't want to teach my children French. She said, I want my children to speak Spanish because it makes so much more sense in our country for them to speak Spanish. And I thought that was so, it was really a interesting moment for me when I listened to that and her say that because I do think it was a really important thing for her to say and uh, feel even, you know, in the 60s and whatnot that, you know what, uh, yeah, it's cool I can speak French and whatnot, but it makes more sense for my children in in this country to grow up speaking Spanish. So I thought that was neat. But those two men, and then I said to Jack... I'd always have this mania before about making my children learn French because I saw how that other language absolutely doubled my life and made you be able to meet all those people that you... But I said, uh, you know, I'm going to make my children learn Spanish as their second language. You know, every we should just, if to call and everyone want to have their own little thing, but really we should turn to this hemisphere. Um, 
And I'm going to do that anyway. It's absolutely astounding for her to say that in 1960. Mm -hmm. We must remember that in 1960, that Mexicans, Latinos are discriminated against if they speak Spanish. Right. It, it was. It, I'm sorry. It would have actually been. I'm trying to think of when she recorded early 1964. So I mean, same area of time. But even even today, you know, even as recently as the 2000s, we've you know here in California, which is considered such a liberal state, we've mm-hmm. passed English only laws. So at this time period, one of the you know one of the 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 thinking was you know one of the ways that we assimilate Mexicans is to prevent them from speaking Spanish, and kids would get a little dunce camp put on them, and they'd get put in the corner if they spoke Spanish. Um, if they didn't speak English fluently, they would get that dunce camp. So there was a big stigma around that, and you know you have generations of kids during that time period who couldn't speak Spanish, even though it was like even their parents' main language, but their parents didn't want them to discriminated against. Wow. The other the other thing is that, you know, the Kennedys Kennedy is the first sitting president to attend a Latino event. The first sitting president wow. to attend a Latino event. It's 1960. And so not only do they attend, they, you know, she speaks in Spanish for the presidential campaign. She had already recorded a commercial uh, where she spoke Spanish, you know, saying, you know, hello, I am the, the wife of President Kennedy uh, or of, of Senator Kennedy. Uh, so, you know, she, I remember when President Obama was res- running that Michelle Obama came here to Los Angeles and she went on one of the Spanish language shows and she spoke in Spanish. And even then it was revolutionary. So to have Jackie do this, you know, 15, 50 years before was incredible. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I would say that the other thing that the Kennedys did was that they uh, they reached out to the Latino community. So in many ways, the Viva Kennedy clubs were kind of like a conduit for them, uh, kind of a buffer between them and the Latino community, or maybe more of a bridge to the Latino community. But JFK still went out to the Latino community. When he came to Los Angeles, he went to places that were central to the community. So symbolic places like Alvera Street, which is, you know, more of a tourist place, but still is a place that really signifies the Latino community. Uh, He went to East Los Angeles, which is, you know, the the heartland of the Latino community, uh, the largest Latino community in the United States at this time. And so he was doing his best to reach out to them as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and I, I don't know, that's just really crazy for me to think. I mean, like you said, in 1960, I mean, that's 35 presidents in and it took that long for someone to, you know, reach out to this community. That's wild to me. It just doesn't make sense. You know, the Kennedys not only represented Camelot to white Americans, they represented Camelot to Latinos. Latinos could relate to the Kennedys. They were Irish. They were immigrants. You know, Irish immigrants had been heavily discriminated against. And one of the things that they'd been discriminated against for was their religion. So they were immigrants. They were Catholic. And so Latinos really saw them as, oh, I can relate to them. They're outsiders. They're Catholics. We have a connection. 
perhaps it's because of that, that the Kennedys further won the hearts over of many Mexicans when they went to visit Mexico City in 1962. So very early on in the presidency. Guys, History Horde has added new products to their collection that I know you will for sure love. They now offer three different types of Kennedy campaign pins, Kennedy and Johnson, Students for Kennedy, and Triumpha con Kennedy, which is Spanish for Triumph with Kennedy. I was so excited to receive mine and add them to my collection. History Horde really is amazing, with no doubt 100% authentic pins with a certificate included, incredible packaging, and an extremely fair price, they will always be one of my favorite companies to shop from. I couldn't be more thrilled to add more authentic Kennedy campaign pins to my collection, and I know you guys will be so excited to get some too. The link in the show notes will lead you to historyhoard.com to get your own and use code KDPODCAST for 10% off. Again, that's historyhoard.com, code KDPODCAST, with no spaces for 10% off. As I said, a direct link and details are in this episode's description. While you're there, check out all the other genuine and ethical relics they have. Don't miss out on holding a piece of Kennedy history in the palm of your hand. While they were in Mexico City, they attended mass at the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe. This is a really famous basilica. This basilica is famous for its image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's you know, like the Virgin Mary, like Mexicans' version of the, of the Virgin Mary. Uh, devout Mexicans believe that uh, this miraculous image of the Virgin Mary appeared to an indigenous peasant on this site in the 1500s. It's the second most visited Catholic shrine only after St. Peter's in Rome. There were 2,000 people that attended the mass and I'm not misquoting this, another 250,000 listened outside over a loudspeaker. There's this large square, the Socala in Mexico City, around um, which key buildings are located, including this basilica. When it ended, Jackie placed a bouquet of red roses before this holy relic of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And what was interesting to me when I was doing the research on this visit for my book, A Place at the Nayarit, is that the visit really received scant attention in the U.S. press. And it appears in just very few accounts of the Kennedys, again, to, to the point earlier why we know very little about Latinos and the Kennedys. But the reason that I thought I would find a lot on this visit is because the Mexican papers gave it weeks of coverage. I had done research in a 20-year run of this one Mexican newspaper and other Mexican newspapers. And I was constantly coming across the coverage, different pictures, people responding to how they thought about it. Um, in the Kennedy papers at the museum, there are some accounts of it of by Americans who were living in Mexico at the time and attended the mass with the Kennedys. And what's interesting to me was that there was something I didn't find in the accounts, yet even as a little girl, I would hear stories about this visit. And in those stories, what I was told and what Latino friends of mine who grew up in you know, different parts of, of California were told, they'd heard the same story, was that the first lady had crawled, crawled on her knees from the square outside the basilica to the framed picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe at the altar. And that's a distance of more than 300 yards. And this is what the pilgrimage, this is what those who come and make a pilgrimage to the Virgen of Guadalupe do. 
I've actually never found any written accounts that this is what happened. Um, I'm not sure if it actually did, but it's fascinating to me that this is a story that has taken hold in the Latino community. To me, it shows how much the Latinos, uh, Mexicans uh, appreciated the visit and how much it kind of evolved into this mythic narrative of the Kennedys respecting Mexican culture. Absolutely. That's amazing. And if she really did that, I mean, what a reverence, you know, there as well. And I, and I know she did have reverence for the community and the culture and everything as well. Um, yeah, that's fascinating that however many years later, it's that's a story that lives on. Yes, absolutely. There are other accounts that we do have uh, evidence of and that we, uh, we, we know that the Kennedys had many interactions with the Latino community at key moments. And one of these would be during the Chicano movement. And so again, the Chicano movement is a um, you know, civil rights movement. It takes place in the 1960s and 70s. And there are a lot of different parts of it. So organizing around labor, schools, land, dignity, right? There, there's lots of different parts of it. And so one of these movement, one of the parts of the movement uh, revolves around major protests that happened in March of 1968 in East Los Angeles. And they're referred to as the East LA blowouts. And this is uh, a time in which students are really upset about the inequality in their education, the lack of good education, the ways in which they're being funneled into classes that see them only as laborers, so shop and homemaking. And so the students in East Los Angeles walk out. Uh, out of four of the high four secondary schools, 15,000 students walk out. And their goal is to bring awareness to their situation and how substandard these conditions are. And they're met with resistance. They're met with police violence. Uh, they're met with, you know, the school officials being very upset with them. They're threatened. I mean, this lasts for, for weeks. The school board gets involved. The parents get involved. And they're threatened with suspension. suspension. The graduating seniors are told you're going to get your college scholarship taken away. And so they're they think, what can we do to bring sympathy to our cause? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is we need to meet with a public official. And Bobby Kennedy, who is running for president at this time, meets with them. And the students, and there's a documentary called Chicano. And they, you know, in it, there's footage of the students. There's interviews with the students uh, now as, as adults remembering and what's so striking, I mean, I get chills just thinking about it, and I've seen this documentary so many times. What's so striking about the student's account is just how seen they feel when they meet with Bobby Kennedy. They say that he knew exactly what their cause was about, that he already had a list of their demands. He asked informed questions, and they he took pictures with them so that you know, there would be evidence of the meeting and he really supported them. And it really helped change the tenor of the conversation and the attitude towards these students as, oh, right, this is a civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is fascinating. There was, a, there was a quote when I was kind of going over your notes and stuff for this um, episode and doing some research on my own. Uh, there was a quote made 
I can't remember who, but I'm sure you you will know. But um, during you know his time with Cesar Chavez, there was a quote from someone saying that Bobby didn't come in just saying this is how you fix this, this is what you do, this is whatever. He came in with really a, a mindset of okay. Um, what can I do to help? And what do you need? Tell me, I'm here to listen. And I think that's something just so just in Bobby's being and his character that is so important. And so, I mean, worthy of being modeled after to this day of stopping and listening and saying, what do you need? How can I help? Because I don't know the answers. You're going to have to lead me towards them. And I love that so much. I just feel like he did have that persona. So I mean, it was just who he was. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that when we think of the Kennedys, we think of a life of service, mm-hmm. but we and we think of that service as often being framed by politics. But here we see that he's meeting with the most disenfranchised populations. He's meeting with immigrants, people that speak mainly Spanish. He's meeting with students, people that can't even vote, right? He's not doing it for the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's meeting with Cesar Chavez, which I'll talk about in a minute, a labor union organizer. At, and yet he goes as a servant. I mean, in the, in the truest sense of what service embodies, he goes as a servant to say, how may I serve you? Not how may you serve my agenda? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that so much. He just, I mean, he just had a way of what we all should do. Every, we're all the same, you know? <laughs> you know, we're all human beings, the same, living the same, you know, trying to live the same good life here. Like, let's, let's, work together and take care of one another. And he saw that. And I just think, I think that's amazing. Yes. Yes. And, you know, he came at the most opportune moments for these movements. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was there to help them when they most needed it. So when, you know, he meets Cesar Chavez, Cesar Chavez is a labor union organizer. He's head of the United Farm Workers Union. Uh, Cesar Chavez is known and the United Farm Workers are known for their their embracement of nonviolence. And so they, you know, they strike, they march, and Cesar Chavez puts his body on the line for this movement. He mm-hmm. laughs. So in 1968, he uh, did a, engaged on a long fast. And when it was time to break that fast, Robert Kennedy traveled to Delano to break bread with Chavez. And, you know, Delano is even still, you know, I, I drove through there recently when I was on my way to the Bay Area, is still not, it's it's farmland, right? It's not connected to major cities. So for Robert Kennedy to see Cesar Chavez, he really had to make an effort. He went to him. He didn't ask Cesar Chavez to come down to Los Angeles to see him. So he went, he broke bread with him. Uh, literally, right, They uh, his Cesar, the first thing Cesar Chavez uh, consumes when breaking the fast is the Eucharist. And so here's Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy as a servant, but also as a Catholic saying, we're mm-hmm. going to engage in this ceremony. We're going to engage in this symbolism. And Chavez in turn is so moved by this that he commits to the Kennedy campaign. And he does so in a way that is empowering to the Latino community, where he says, we are going to engage in a voter registration campaign. You know, they're not necessarily 
campaigning for Kennedy, but they're trying to get the vote out. So just that alone, right? Just let's get the vote out. Let's make sure that Latinos are registered. Let's make sure they know how to vote. Let's make sure if there's any resistance around where they can vote, uh, that we're going to help them. And so they do everything they can to get those, get the vote efforts out. Wow. That's amazing. Um, too, I, I, I was, again, when I was looking into this earlier, I, I came across that video. And I think I've inserted it in an episode a while back. I want to do an episode on, you know, Bobby and uh, Cesar. It, without pronouncing it incorrectly, is it Chavez? Yes, Chavez. Okay. A lot of well, people say Chavez, but it's Chavez. It's Chavez. Okay, good. I'm glad, I'm glad that I, I know how to pronounce that correctly now. Um, but I want to do an episode purely on their relationship. Uh, I just think it's so, there's so much there for sure. Um, But that clip of him talking, I believe it was to the Kern County Sheriff of, um, and him saying that he was just arresting people because they looked like they were going to break the law. And Bobby says, you need to go read the Constitution of the United States. Like, what is happening here, basically? And, um, yeah, no, he, you can tell that his blood was boiling at, at the injustice that was, was there. And so, uh, yeah, it's very fascinating. I think what's interesting, if you look at Bobby Kennedy's involvement with the Chicano movement at large, whether it's the Chicano blowouts or assisting with the UFW, we see that he's he's an attorney general, right? Mm -hmm. He's uh, a legal, he has a legal mind and he sees injustice. And so by studying these episodes, it really widens our perspective of what we mean about civil rights. We Mm -hmm. tend to focus on civil rights as black, white issues and as being confined to the South. And of course, that's such an important history that we need to keep at the forefront of our minds. But civil rights also affected Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans. It really, you know, women, LGBTQ community. And so it really was a revolution in the country. Mm -hmm. And seeing the ways in which the Kennedys got involved helps us expand our understanding of civil rights. Absolutely. I completely agree. As we know, after winning the California primary, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated on June 5th in 1968 in Los Angeles. What I wanted to also tell you about was uh, some events that happened the day before his death and then that evening. Many of us have seen pictures of Bobby Kennedy after he's assassinated and he's on the floor of the Ambassador Hotel in the kitchen. And if we look back at that picture, there's a young man holding his head, kind of cradling his head. Mm -hmm. That man is Juan Romero. He's a Mexican immigrant from the state of Nayeri, the same state that my family is from. He's a 17-year-old busboy who works at the ambassador. His dad worked at the ambassador and his dad didn't want him to get any trouble. So he made Juan Romero get a job there. And the day before Bobby Kennedy is assassinated, Juan Romero goes and makes a room service delivery to him. And Juan Romero is quoted as saying, he shook my hand as hard as anyone has ever shaken it. I walked out of there feeling like I was 20 feet tall, thinking, I'm not just a busboy. I'm a human being. Wow. I've never heard that. Is it right? It's just, oh, my goodness. 
I've heard, I've heard it a million times, Alice, and I still get chills. <laughs> oh, that's so touching. Yes. And so later, after Kennedy had won the California primary, he delivers his victory speech, and they're trying to decide which exit to take, and they have him take the exit that leads him into the kitchen where he's assassinated, um, you know, because they had considered taking a different exit, mm-hmm. his Secret Service, and they think that's a safer way. So he avoids the throngs of supporters by going through the hotel's kitchen. And there's a crowd gathered there. You know, I mean, the Mexican workers are gathered there in the kitchen. They want to be able to see Kennedy Mm -hmm. and Romero's there. And so Kennedy remembers him, right? Like how many people must Kennedy interact with? But he remembers him. So he reaches out to shake Romero's hand again. And that's the moment in which Sirhan Sirhan opens fire. Mm -hmm. Kennedy's hit three times. He falls to the floor in front of Romero. And so Romero not kneels down and he reaches his hand under Kennedy's head to support it. Ethel Kennedy squeezes him aside to kneel next to her husband. And the last contact that Romero has with Kennedy is he pulls out his rosary beads that he always carries with them. And he presses them into Kennedy's hands. Wow. That it literally almost brings a tear to my eye because it's so tragically full circle of just a reverence for each other, you know, and uh, mankind and humanity in general and just the activism that he has done for, you know, the Mexican-American community there. And then his last contact is basically with this young boy who holds him. I don't know. There's just something so tragically full circle and beautiful and terrible and all the things all in one, if that makes any sense. It makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. I mean, to me also that that Catholic connection. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think of a 17 year old boy walking around with a rosary, right? And having right. the presence of mind in that moment to like offer him some solace. Mm-hmm. I wow. will also say not everybody saw this as a moment of humanity and connection. He, Romero received hate mail for many years in his life. People asking him, you know, why didn't you stop? Why did you have to make him stop? Maybe if if he wouldn't have shaken your hand, then he wouldn't have been assassinated. Um, Why didn't you stop anything to to stop? Why didn't you do anything to stop the assassination? So Romero lived lived a very troubled life after that. He went through rounds of depression. Uh, He had a very hard life. Oh, goodness. How terrible. One of the bright spots in this narrative, though, is that... You know, Maria Shriver later reads about Romero's account. You know, it's been covered in the newspapers Mm -hmm. and different radio accounts since then. And Maria Shriver hadn't known about it before. And when she reads about it, you know, Bobby's niece, you know, Maria Shriver, Bobby's niece, she writes a thank you letter to Romero just to let him know, thank, thank you. Thank you for being there for my uncle. Wow. That's so touching. I love her. (laughs) Yeah. I love her. She's so great. She's so touching. And well-deserved thank you letter, for sure. Yes. The night that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, my father, Hector Molina, was actually working at the Ambassador Hotel. He was a bartender. And he worked there with his two best friends, Bobby and Victor. They all worked as and bartenders at the ambassador and so they were on the job when kennedy was assassinated wow they you know they did not meet bobby kennedy directly but they 
spent the night at the hotel. Everybody that was at the hotel when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated was asked to stay there until they can all give a statement and be investigated. And so they didn't leave until the next morning. At the time, my grandmother had a restaurant, the Nayarit in Echo Park on Sunset Boulevard. And the next day, my father, who wasn't yet married to my mother, Bobby and Victor, all went to the Nayadi to let everybody know what was going on. And everybody really felt a connection to the Kennedys. Mm. And then they felt that they had an extra connection because of these three that were there. And so this is a story that I've heard about for many, for many people over the years. So, you know, we think about you know, where were you when John F. Kennedy was shot? Where were you where Bobby Kennedy was shot? And we don't always picture the listener of that question or the person recounting their story as Mexican immigrants. Mm-hmm. And yet, because of their connection, because of the actual connection in terms of, you know, Mexican workers there, and then everybody ended up knowing Juan Romero's story very early on. It was reported in the Mexican papers. They felt like they had a special connection to the Kennedys. Some of the workers at the Nayadi reported that that evening when they were leaving the Nayadi restaurant, that they heard sirens when they were in the vicinity of the Ambassador Hotel. And so they wondered, is that what that was about, right? So it was that way in which they were touched just by being in the same close proximity to the Ambassador, to Kennedy's visit, to the workers that were there. Sure. And I can imagine the emotions that your father must have felt being there. What are what are some of the things that he over the years has described or had described to your family about how he felt in that moment hearing about it? His face would be, he would go very silent when he mm. would mention it and look downcast and get quieter as he told the story. And just the shock of it. So even, you know, decades later, it was a story that was about what a tragedy this was, mm-hmm. uh, both both because of the assassination, of course, but also just losing somebody who could who had the potential of doing so much for the Latino community. Absolutely. I can imagine. Wow. That's that's crazy that he was there and everything. Wow. I'll tell you this story. I'm not sure if it'll fit in and if, if you... Um, would like to use it, but this is another strange connection for the time period. Uh, my family has other connections to this time period and, and you know, well-known events. So one is that in 1968, my grandmother decided that she wanted to open a bar in the Nayarit restaurant. It, you know, served beer, but not alcohol, not cocktails. And, you know, she, she ran the restaurant as a single woman. My Mother Maria helped her. She was her right-hand person, but neither really knew a lot about bartending or drinks or that sort of thing. And so my grandmother sent her to bartending school. And my mom took a six-week course in the International School of Bartending, just a few blocks away from the Nayarit restaurant there on Sunset Boulevard. It was run by a fellow countryman, uh, Tomas Lau. And, you know, my mom learned how to make drinks, 112 different cocktails. The school had these little mock bars. And so when the students were paired off, one would make the cocktails, the other one would order the drinks. And, you know, it was the way that they were trained in bartending school. Mm -hmm. James Earl Ray 
was my mother's bartending partner. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) This was in January of 1968, the six week course. (gasps) They shared the workstation. They took turns playing customer and bartender. James O'Reilly would call out his cocktail orders. Yes. Oh, wow. I bet. Oh my goodness. I bet that was the shock of her life to hear the news that would happen just a few months later. Absolutely. And, and when, you know, shortly after the bartending course ends, you know, James O'Reilly travels to Memphis and on April 4th, 1968, he assassinates Martin Luther King. And your listeners may be familiar with one of the photos that the FBI or the photo that the FBI used to identify James Earl Ray. In the photo, James Earl Ray is wearing a, like a, a white shirt and a black jacket, mm-hmm. and he's standing next to another man. And that man is Tomas Lau, the owner of that bartending school. And that photo is of Tomas Lau and James Earl Ray taken at the end of the course oh. when Ray received his bartending certificate. And that was the photo that Tomas Lau provided to the FBI to help identify Ray. Oh my goodness. This is, this is shocking. Like I, oh my gosh, I bet your mom was just horrified. Like literally like, oh my gosh, what I have literally a terrible human was with me. Oh my goodness gracious. Wow. Your family has some crazy historical ties. It does. But that is also the point of the book. The book is really trying to say, you know, we often think about Mexican immigrants, especially during this time period of the 50s, 60s, as, as mainly laborers. Uh, you know, it, the archival record doesn't tell the story of their full lives. Mm-hmm. And so the book is trying to say these Mexican workers had full lives, you know, even at work. Yeah, the, the book looks at their their trials, their tribulations. And it looks at the ways in which when they went out and got jobs at different places, at the Coconut Grove, at the Ambassador, at Dodger Stadium, they were at these places that people wanted to be at. Yeah. You know, they 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 were part of the social, cultural, historical, political fabric of Los Angeles. They lived these multidimensional lives. That's amazing. It very, I always have to bring in a Hamilton reference, very like in the room where it happened situations for sure. Yes, absolutely. Wow. That's fascinating. When will your book be available? On April 4th. Well, that's so exciting. I, I want a copy. I'll have to get by one. I, that's very exciting. Thank you so much. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been, I've learned so, so much and I just, uh, I could talk to you all day. This has been so amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast and just teaching us so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've learned a lot from your podcast and it was fun to come in and fill in a few moments of when Latinos were connected to the Kennedys. I also uh, heard that you were writing your own book. So I just also wanted to say, wish you luck and tell you I'm excited for you. And if you need anything, uh, encouragement, whatever, you let me know. Because I know what a, a long, hard road that is to haul. Absolutely. Thank you. It has. <laughs> I'm just in the early stages, it feels like. And it's already taking so long just for the early stages. So yes, it is no joke to write a book. I will say that for sure. So thank you so much for saying so. Is there um, anywhere that people can follow along? Do you have a website or something you want to plug that I can put in the description of the episode? You can follow me on Twitter, Prof Natalia M. Okay, well, thank you so much again for joining us. I truly appreciate it. And I hope maybe in the future you can come back on and talk to us some more. I would love that. It was a lot of fun, Allison. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I personally do. Check out the links in the description of this episode for Dr. Molina's website and Twitter and Instagram. Also, you can find the History Horde link there as well as my merch and recommendation links. Also, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Kennedy Dynasty. Please rate the show five stars and write a positive written review if you've got a second to spare. And I hope you have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Come on and vote for Kennedy. Vote for Kennedy. Keep America strong. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling along. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.